I think that everybody is addicted to something. I really do. And like, that doesn't mean that, you know, some people hear me say this and they're like, you're projecting your own shit. And it's like, no, like you could be addicted to like vegetables. Like, I'm not saying that you are addicted to meth. Like, I'm just saying that like everyone has something that they can't get enough of. And sometimes people are addicted to toxic relationships. And there's like a whole program dedicated to that. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Lindsay Metzelar. Lindsay is a native New Yorker and host of the highly popular We Met at Acme podcast, which has amassed over 7 million downloads since she started it in 2017. Lindsay also has a food blog called Don't Expect Salads, which has over 110,000 followers. In today's episode, we dive deep into Lindsay's recovery journey. Up until 2018, when Lindsay got sober, Lindsay was heavily addicted to marijuana, What began as a way for her to cope and escape quickly morphed into a decade-long addiction that impacted her personal and professional life and became something she didn't think she could live without. Today, we discuss her addiction journey from start to finish, and she shares what finally led to her making the decision to stop getting high. Lindsay and I also talk about the many blessings that sobriety has given her and how she has learned to manage her emotions, develop self-awareness, and create a new identity. We also talk about what you must do to thrive in recovery, how to survive a breakup, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Lindsay Metzelar to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on and congrats on four years of sobriety, but I want to go back where this all started because it seemed just from like listening to your story that subconsciously you just knew that you probably shouldn't drink or smoke like I heard stories of you like faking like inhaling when it came to weed or like filling your beer cup up with water so like subconsciously it just seemed like you knew like not to do these things when did it become conscious for you that you were actually like I need to like escape I need to check out I'm actually going to you know start smoking to escape the pain yeah that's a great observation I think that for me I just knew it was just a baseline knowledge of being different. And, you know, addicts are different. I like to say we have the X factor. But unfortunately, that factor means we can't drink and smoke and use drugs the way that normal people do. Not that it's, you know, so normal to do those things anyway. But so I knew that there was something different about me. I didn't know that it had to do with the fact that I am like an all or nothing kind of person, but I knew that there was something about me that was different. And so when it came to like experimenting with drugs and alcohol, you know, like all the other kids did, I was more timid about it. At the time, again, as you mentioned, like it wasn't conscious. I just thought that like I was scared to do those things. Like I had a lot of judgment around being like a good girl, you know, and then I think it transitioned to me using it to escape once I decided, and it was like not a true fact, but I thought that I was better high 
than I was sober. I thought that I cared less about things. I thought that people liked me more. And maybe that was true in the beginning, you know? And then, you know, quickly, it was like the wrong people. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thank you for like your way of, you know, being able to self-reflect and understanding like where you were at that point. You mentioned that like you were in a spot where then people liked you and you were more comfortable with what was going on. Like what specifically do you think it was like about weed that like helped you like feel that way? Like were you like somebody who was, you know, trying to always kind of fit in with a certain friend group or did you have like tons of anxiety growing up? Like what did that feeling, what was so appealing to you about that feeling? I definitely did have anxiety growing up. I grew up in an all girls school environment and so there was a lot of like girl drama in my life growing up and I cared a lot and I kind of developed this between like the competitiveness of the school I was at and the girl drama. I developed for sure insecurity but also this like type A personality and being type A, you know, I was someone who cared a lot and I wanted to not give a fuck and that's the personality of someone who's a stoner. So I was like, I want to adapt this personality and like be this person who doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because it's like kind of opposites in a way attract, especially if we're somebody who doesn't, we're not comfortable with a certain part of ourselves. We're like, I think it's like, it's like the grass is always greener, right? It's like, I want the opposite of what I am and maybe I'll feel more secure. Maybe I'll feel, feel better about myself. I've definitely had my own experience with that. And, you know, as this all comes back to relating to you and the trajectory of your addiction, I mean, I've heard you talk about this in that, you know, there's a certain point, I think when people are, are getting high on whatever substance they choose and it starts out being fun, it starts out being something that's alluring and, and entertaining, but then it reaches a point where now it's like you're just getting high to get back to baseline and you're not even having fun anymore. Like what did that path look like for you? Oh yeah, that's so real. I was just like not even getting high anymore. I was, when I wasn't smoking weed, I was so irritable. And so I would have to smoke weed to get to a a baseline, as you said, of just being normal, being who I thought I was. And then it was like repeat. And so my core, I needed it for basic functions. Like I needed weed to sleep. I needed it to eat and I needed it to live essentially. Like I really did. Did you ever get to that stage yourself? Me? Oh yeah. I mean, but for me, I think it just was, it was different because I was just so addicted to the lifestyle and what that all came with, where it came from validation from people I wouldn't get validation with. It came from me not having anxiety. It came from building this sense of community that I didn't really have at home because my parents were divorced. And then it all, it got to the point where, yeah, like, I mean, I'm, I'm waking up at like 2 PM and I'm ripping like bong hits and then I go eat my first meal of the day. And then it's like, all right, we go get high again and smoke another eighth or whatever it was. And then we're eating another like, you know, massive meal. And then you go to bed and it's like, it repeats all over again. I mean, it's like this crazy religion, right? To where all you do is you spend every single freaking moment of that day being like, all right, like, how am I going to get high? Where am I going to get it from? Who am I doing it with? What am I going to listen to? What am I going to eat afterwards? And then like, it's just on to the next high. I mean, I don't know if you relate to that at all. Oh my God, 100%. It was, it was all about that. And and not even just about like, when is the next time going to be? Because I felt like I didn't let myself get to a point where I ever was without weed. 
but more so like when is the next time where I'm not going to be smoking? Because when I'm not going to be smoking, I'm going to be thinking about it. So like, do I have to go to that friend's house who doesn't allow me to smoke there? Because that's going to give me anxiety. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's it's so true, right? Because you know, you kind of, you kind of always wanted to be prepared, like in those situations. And you were, it was almost like it would hurt the experience, I guess, in a way, because you weren't even like able to like be grateful in that moment of what you were doing and who you were spending the time with. Cause you were always thinking of like the next, you know, time where you potentially wouldn't have certain things, or you would have, like you said, you'd have to go to work or you'd have to go to a friend's house that maybe wasn't cool with what you were doing. I'm really interested in that. Like you smoked heavily for over a decade. And based on what I've heard, you really never turned and got addicted to any like hard drugs like like what kept you what kept you off of that I think just like fear or maybe it was just like a not yet I definitely towards the end of my like using I started to dabble in like the chocolate shrooms I know that's not like technically considered like a hard drug but I started to experiment more towards the end which I think means that if I kept going like I would have I would have for sure tried the hard stuff especially if weed wasn't working anymore the way it kind of was. So I think it was just a matter of time and fear, which I was like still getting what I needed out of the weed stuff that I didn't, I didn't need something stronger, but yet being the keyword, you know? Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned like, you know, going down this path of addiction to weed. And then, you, you know, you just mentioned this stuff with the shrooms and you, you talked about like how you got to a place where you were irritable without it. You were almost having anxiety about like what life was going to be like without it. Like how did this impact, you know, you professionally, how did this impact your relationships? Like how did that impact like other areas of your life besides yourself? It impacted everything so much. And by the way, I forgot to mention this before, but I definitely went through a phase where I was like obsessed with MDMA and it was like a dark, a dark time as well. I think it affected everything in that like weed was number one and everything else was like number two, three, four. And so in terms of my romantic relationships, like I would not even consider dating a partner who was not okay with the amount and the volume of weed that I was smoking you know, the tequila I was drinking, whatever it was, if a partner was not okay with that, they weren't the person for me. Similar with friends, I found friends who didn't want me to smoke in their apartments disrespectful to me. I took everything very personally. And I think a lot of that was a side effect of the weed, like paranoia and, you know, everyone's against me kind of energy where you just think that like, because of whatever the weed is doing to you, like you're just so in your head and then your head is a dark place and, and you just push people away. Right. Yeah. I mean, you definitely end up pushing people away and it becomes a, a really dark place because, you know, I think I would say most people, they end up getting to a spot where they're like, I know I need to change. I know my life is falling apart, but I'm miserable. I have no self-confidence and no self-esteem. I just don't know how to do it, nor do I like know what my life's going to be without this thing. You mentioned relationships and I know like your work and like what you talk about on your podcast is, is mainly about dating and about relationships. Do you think that like addiction and toxic relationships, do you think that they do similar things for people? Definitely. I think toxic relationships can be an addiction. I think that everybody is addicted to something. I really do. And like that doesn't mean that, you know, some people hear me say this and they're like, oh, you're projecting your own shit. And it's like, no, like you could be addicted to like, vegetables like 
I'm not saying that you are addicted to meth. Like, I'm just saying that, like, everyone has something that they can't get enough of. And sometimes people are addicted to toxic relationships. And there's like a whole program dedicated to that. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed myself, even like, you know, throughout my recovery that, you know, I've been drawn at times towards toxic relationships and you have to almost catch yourself because it does give you that same reward as addiction sometimes. Like it's like, all right, things are really good and then they're bad. And then it's like, you're almost like waiting for the next time for it to be good. And it can kind of remind you of like a rush of like, you know, getting high in a way. So for you though, like I think something that was really fascinating to me is that you're like super self-aware now. And that when you started like you know, after you had this moment where you were on your family vacation and you're, you come home with your parents and they're like, all right, you need to, we're coming to therapy with you and this and that, that you were projecting a lot of stuff onto other people. Like, when was the moment and how did you transform this projection into like this immense amount of self-awareness that you have now? Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that, but I still feel like I'm working on my self-awareness every day. I think it was kind of like, something I had been denying for a while. Like I had been doing therapy for a long time, but I was smoking so much that like nothing was changing. And I knew that the problem had to do with the fact that I wasn't willing to stop and that I wasn't honest with my therapist or people in my life about it. And it was just a matter of like, okay, when am I going to get honest? And even, even then I was like, I don't really have a problem. It was only once I heard other people with the same problem as me that I was like, okay, I'm giving up. It's like almost once you you hear that you were not alone, like message in your head and you can relate to somebody and somebody like, you know, you're like reaching your hand up, but you don't even know like what you're reaching for. And then you have that person there to kind of reach up and, and grab it for you. And I want to talk about that moment because, you know, you didn't just come home from that trip. Or you didn't just completely change your life. You kind of just went down the similar path while trying to like hide behind going to therapy and CBT and stuff like that. What was the day like for you when you just, you finally stopped you know, smoking weed, like how did you do it? And then what was the initial days of sobriety like for you? It was such a crazy day. Like I remember it so vividly because it was like the first day of clarity in like 13 years. I actually smoked that morning and I had woken up being like, I don't want to do this today. Like I don't, I'm, I don't want to smoke today. And I woke up and I smoked and I was like, oh, I need to do something about this. So I remember calling a sober friend and being like, what do I do? Is there a place where I can go? Is there like a program? You know, what, what is it? And she told me about a place and I went to the place and I heard the message that I needed to hear. And even still, I was like in denial. Like I was like, you always just like, are like, well, these people are so much worse. Like, I can stop and still like are just resistant. I think then it was really hard because the first night without weed, I could not sleep at all. Like I was having a full withdrawal and I didn't think that was possible with like a drug like, you know, marijuana, which is like a plant. I didn't think that was possible and I couldn't sleep at all. I was sweating profusely, like sweating out all the toxins of like everything I had been putting into my body for so long. And it was really hard. I think it was especially hard for me because as a weed smoker, I, I used to smoke spliffs. 
So like it was as if I was giving up weed and cigarettes at the same time, which I've never actually said, but that was like a huge thing. Like it was like, I wasn't just going cold turkey weed. I was going cold turkey from the tobacco as well. And so it was, it was so hard. And I remember I like couldn't eat the first few days after, like I had lost so much weight. I couldn't sleep. I really couldn't function for like a full week. And then things started to get back to normal. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And congrats to you on that. I mean, and I, it's just, just so interesting. Like even, you know, sometimes like a lot of times we have these rock bottom moments that we look back, we're like, man, I wish I would have changed there, but there were so many other lessons that you, we learn along the way that were like, yeah, that's why I didn't change there. I'm so thankful that it happened the way that it did. Did it impact you that you were just addicted to weed? And I don't mean this in a shameful way, but I know I've heard people be like, well, it's not that bad. It's just weed. Like I really don't have a problem. Like how did you learn to actually, how did you learn to embrace recovery for marijuana? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com slash Doug Again, it's earthechofoods.com slash Doug to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. I think just being able to be around other people who, like the variation of people, right? So there were like people who had been sober from weed for like a few years. There were other people in the same stage as me. There were people who had like a few months and just seeing how everyone is and like the happiest people to me were the people who had been sober from weed for a few years. And I was like, I really want what they have. And being able to recognize that and saying to myself, well, how do I get what they have? Oh, by giving this up. So it's like a choice that I had to make, you know, one day at a time. But every day that I made that choice, I ended the day so much happier, so much happier. What did they have that you wanted other than them not smoking? I think just like freedom. Like when I smoked weed and the way that I did, there was no freedom. It was controlling me. Like I could not go on a trip without the first thing that I was doing when I land, getting weed or bringing it on the plane and putting my life and my traveling companion's life in jeopardy. And that is really, it's not, it's whatever the opposite of freeing is. And so being able to see that people were happy and eating and sleeping regardless of weed like was enough for me to be like, I need that. Yeah. It's really amazing that, and I think this is pretty common in a lot of people's stories and that the things that you were searching for, 
from weed at the beginning were like, you know, to feel happy, feel peace, feel outside of yourself, like to, or being to feel comfortable with yourself, like all these things. You actually got that by giving it up. You know what I mean? Like you thought you were going to get it by smoking and continuing to smoke, but it really didn't truly happen. And so you gave it up. So true. I want to talk about how you transformed your identity because so many people, they get addicted to this identity of not being an, a, an addict necessarily, but like the people they spend time with, the memories, maybe the music they would listen to in certain moments like that. And I mean, you, that was like part of your brand. Like, I think I heard you say you created like a Twitter page for like potheads or something back in the day and you embrace that and you just knew that this was going to be who you were. Like, what was that process like for you for changing your identity? That was one of the hardest things of all. And you're amazing for being able to figure all that out. Like you're, you research a lot and it shows. It was for sure a huge part of my identity. And I remember like growing up or not growing up, but like in college and whatever, I would say like, I can't wait to be like a cool sober mom, like a stoner mom. Like that's going to be me. And you know, I want to smoke weed at my wedding. Like I want to get married in Jamaica with like joints in my mouth. Like all of those like future memories, I struggled to let go of because it wasn't even just weed. It was like alcohol too, which wasn't even my main thing. But I was like, like, how can you go out and not drink? How can you, you know, whatever. How could I be on vacation and not have a pina colada and I think just being able to again like a moment a minute at a time ask myself if I'm happier and it was just so clear that I was and so I was like yeah I could go back to that identity but like this new identity has done so much for me it has been so fruitful for my career for my relationships for my my family like issues, you know, being resolved. And so I just was like, why risk? Like, why do I need to hold on to this identity that did anything for me? And why can't I just like mourn it in a beautiful way? Not even mourn it, but be like, oh, that was a part of me, but that's no longer me. The same way that like you grow up and like if you used to beat up kids when you were younger, do you want to continue holding on to that? No. Like, but it, it's a part of it's a part of you realizing that like it's never okay to do that, you know? For sure. And I appreciate the the kind words. And yeah, I research, but it's also like I mean, I'm also in recovery and there's a lot of parallels in our story. So I, I relate a lot to like some of the stuff that you've said. And I'm like, all right, I think this all kind of makes sense. And along the same lines of like letting go of that, I guess, shattered dreams or that past life that you thought you were going to live on the other side of that, that I think is important is like, how do you step into this new place? And I think a lot of people, they have a hard time here and they're kind of caught in this gray area where they've let go of like these old patterns, but they're like trying to figure out like, where do they go next? What was that process like for you? It was an interesting process. I mean, I had the podcast already for like two years when I got sober and I used to like smoke and I thought that was my creativity. Like I would get high, I would interview people and that was like the vibe. And I was like, no one's going to want to like come hang with me if like we're not getting high on the show, if we're not like, if it's not the same cool like energy. And also, like, I'm not going to have any creativity now that I don't smoke. I'm never going to be creative again. Like, I'll never think of a tweet again. And I, like, not only did I become more creative, but, like, I got my memory back, which was, like, the biggest thing of all. Like, I did not 
have a memory. It was like embarrassing how little of a memory I had. And I got that back and I felt more creative than ever. But it was like a process of trusting and like stepping away from this narrative I'd had that like weed was the only thing that made me that way. So true. And I think also like, I say this a lot, like our environment creates like a false sense of normalcy in that if it's all you're spending time with is is people that smoke weed, if all you're doing is like listening to music and like fantasizing about this world of just being high and doing all these things and you're reading like pot magazines and you're you know following stuff online, then you're going to think that all of that is normal and that's just where you're going to go. And that's the only thing that can give you like happiness and joy. And it's like once you take a step back and you come out of that, you know, cloud of smoke, I guess, if you will, and then you move forward, you're like, oh my gosh, like not only am I able to find other things that make me happy, I don't feel like crap after I do certain things anymore. And I'm like proud of myself for everything that, you know, I've been able to overcome as a result of this. And one of the other things that I think it seems like you've done a really nice job of is, you know, reconnecting with your emotions. And people have a hard time with this as well. And it just seems that for a long time, like pot became this this numbing mechanism to the point where you didn't feel emotions at certain people's funerals. And then like, I would imagine like when you got sober, like things came to the surface. So talk about like what your relationship was like with your emotions before getting sober. And then like, how did you have a healthy relationship with them afterwards? Yeah. Well, before getting sober, I felt like I felt too much before I started smoking weed. I felt like I felt too much. During the time where I was smoking, like 13 years, I felt nothing. Like, I'm not even kidding. I legit felt nothing. Like, I maybe cried like three times, and none of them were because of anything that happened in my life. It was like in movies. So, when I got sober, the first night, that night that I mentioned that I never didn't sleep, I cried like all night. And it wasn't, it wasn't because I was like sad. It was literally like all of like the happy gratitude tears of like, wow, I have so many amazing things. Like, how did I not see them? I feel like I didn't appreciate, like, I feel like I'm not appreciative of everything in my life. It was like humbling tears. Like I can't even explain it. And then the tears like never stopped. And I'm still not a person who cries often. But I cry when I should cry. You know what I mean? Whereas like before, I didn't cry when I should have. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Because you're just kind of completely overwhelming yourself with these numbing mechanisms that, I mean, it just completely <laughs> makes you almost like like mute at times, like when you really should be expressing emotions. And then like, there's like a, a weird level of shame I've in my experience where I'm like, why am I not crying? Because you're so caught up in like, where you already are as far as your, your brain and how it's adapted to the drugs that you don't know that the reason you're not crying is because you're just so you're heavily medicated on substances and it's not allowing you to to confess like how you truly feel and i know being sober and everything that you're doing now has been really powerful in your life like how has getting sober and like reestablishing a healthy relationship with yourself and your emotions like how has that helped you with the relationships in your life including your marriage it has helped me tremendously. I mean, I feel like, first of all, like not being paranoid will do wonders for relationships because you aren't paranoid. Like my anxiety basically disappeared when I got sober. I really do not have any anxiety and I feel like I'm able to 
get the most of my relationships as a result because I'm not bringing in that like anxiety, bringing in that, you know, bad energy. And in terms of my marriage, like I don't feel like I would have attracted the amazing partner that my husband is if I hadn't done that work on myself in terms of sobriety, especially because he is someone that just doesn't care to drink, just doesn't care. You know, he'll do it socially, but he doesn't think about it. And I'd imagine if I was still using the way that I did, it would be so weird to be with someone like him because he would just not understand it at all. And before I dated him or met him, I felt like the people that I dated were addicts and alcoholics. And it was because like I needed, that's what I was seeking. I was seeking myself essentially. And now having done the work on myself, I'm able to be with someone who is so wonderful. And I'd like to think that's a reflection of, you know, because I've done the work to make myself like wonderful and whatnot, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned doing the work and obviously sobriety and reconnecting with yourself, like I mentioned, and having healthier relationships with emotions is also important. Like, were there any other like unhealthy patterns specific to relationships that you had to like work through and unlearn to in order to have like a healthy relationship that you have now? Definitely. I mean, I've been in my fair share of toxic relationships. So I think assuming the worst in a partner is something that I do often, like being very skeptical of someone's intentions is another thing. But this is less about like being sober and more about just like being in my first genuinely healthy relationship and what that's like and how it's different than being in unhealthy ones so true right and it definitely definitely makes sense that if you were in toxic relationships before that you would like be wired in a way to like assume the worst because it's like we only know what we know and if we've just not seen nothing but you know bad relationships and bad partners we in many ways are going to assume that that's the way it's always going to be so it's really cool to hear that you were able to unlearn that i want to kind of shift gears just a little bit and like maybe give some takeaways for the audience and i know like I know a quote of yours, this relates to dating, but I think it relates to sobriety as well is like, if you're confused, they're not interested. Do you think that when people, when they're in this same position, like as far as like getting sober and they're like, I know I need to get sober, but they're like confused within, within themselves. They're like, I know I need to get sober, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Do you think they're just not ready yet? Or do you think that they're just genuinely confused on like what to do moving forward? I think they're not ready yet. Because I think that we're so lucky today that so many people are open about their sobriety. There's always a way to, you can literally just Google how to get sober. Like if you really wanted to get sober, you know, you can find out about like 12 step programs and things like that, that are free. So I really think that you're just unwilling if you're like, oh, how do I do it? I don't know how I would do it, you know, or maybe it's just like a, you're literally, it's a disease. So you just literally don't know how to stop it, which is probably a huge reason. And maybe another one is that like all of your friends are also addicts. So you're like, this is so normal. And no one, like you're reaching for lifelines and everyone's like, no, you're good. You're good. You know? Yeah. But it definitely makes sense. And there is so much information and, and like people are 
pretty fortunate, I think, now that they have podcasts and they have like information online and resources. And I think there's more access to therapy than there ever has been. I mean, I know I think we need to have more access, but there's still a lot of opportunity, I think, for people that wanted to dive into that world. Specifically to like weed and the idea of it being a gateway drug, a lot of people say it's a gateway drug, that it can lead to other things. Like, What's your take on that based on your experience? I definitely agree. I think for me, I was so happy with it that it wasn't gateway at least yet. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of like first base and then you get to second base and then you get to third base. Like, So you have to get to first base before you get to the other one. So it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I heard something. It didn't necessarily completely change my perspective, but it definitely helped me see another side where it was like, they were like, I don't, if there has to be like a gateway pain or gateway trauma in order for that gateway substance to come into play. Like people would ask me, well, like, Hey, if you didn't experience what you experienced, like my parents getting divorced or being rejected by girls and all these things, like what I have still smoked, like, I don't know. Right. It's hard to, hard to know without you know, going back in time and changing the way things played out. But yeah, I definitely think it can lead to other things if you're not careful. One of the things that, that people struggle with a lot is breakups. And I know this is kind of like, as I've said, this is your area of expertise in that dating and relationships. And I know you experienced a pretty like messed up breakup where you were, you know, dumped on your birthday. What was it like? Maybe like five, six years ago, something like that. Knowing what you know now from starting the podcast interviewing a tons of people, speaking with your friends, like what's the blueprint to bouncing back after a breakup? You know, I think the blueprint is always the same. I think it is time, obviously. I think it is getting back out there. It is making that list of like, why it didn't work out with this person. So you remind yourself not to go back to them. And I think it is just like therapy, like just all of those things, and obviously time well spent with friends who are great, who distract you, who make you feel good, who lift you up. But there's no recipe to get over from a breakup faster. Like some people say it's, you know, to get over someone, you have to get under someone else. And like, does that help? Yeah, it probably does. But ultimately, it's the combination of all of those things. Like with time, you reflect and you say like, oh, that wouldn't have worked out anyway because of X, Y, and Z. And so I feel so grateful that that relationship specifically that I'm not in anymore and that I felt like that rejection was like my protection from being with that person. And so it's like reframing that as like rejection is your protection. Yeah. Rejection is protection 100%. And I totally agree with you on that. Obviously, in, in today's world, like we, we experience stress. I'm sure there's times where, like you said, you don't really struggle with necessarily like chronic anxiety, but I'm sure there's times where you likely feel anxious just to the nature of like just the way life can happen. What do you do on like a day-to-day -day basis to make sure you're optimizing your mental health? On a day-to-day -day basis, I try to move my body every day. I try to work out. That for me is like a mental health thing because I just feel, I feel good that I did something for me, that I was off my phone for an hour that day at least, doing something strictly for me. I try to walk as often as I can. I try to talk to friends and family. I try to eat well, but I'm not good at it, but I try. And I would say I eat well for at least one meal a day. And I try to talk to a therapist as often as I can, you know, obviously it's expensive. So 
think right now I'm doing like once a month, so it's not every day, but that I'm not great at meditating, but I'll do like a walking meditation sometimes. I'll listen to a podcast as I walk that brings me joy and being productive and like doing my job makes me happy. I know like that's not always the case for for people, but it it does. So that combination of all those things. Yeah. I love it. I love the fitness component. I mean, it's just so important to move your body and to find different ways to cope with, you know, not just, you know, some of the the pain from people's past that led them to using drugs in the first place, but also just to have it as a healthy strategy for when life happens, like in the in the current moment. I want to talk about like your kind of your personality. Like I'm a type A personality as well. So I was intrigued to learn this and I'm, I'm super hard on myself still like at times, like I'm super regimented. And if certain things don't go my way, I can, you know, sometimes I can just be like, man, I, I'm, I can talk down to myself and stuff. What kind of struggles is like the, the type A personality bring with you being that you are so regimented, you know, sobriety is all about like perfection as, as far as like staying away from drugs, right? What kind of difficulties does that bring up for you and in, in your sobriety? Yeah. In terms of sobriety, like I've been very lucky with relapse not being part of my story, but I'm not perfect about sobriety. I try to stay connected to sobriety and pass the message on and and show up for other people who are sober curious. And I always prioritize those messages over any other messages that I get when someone's like, I, you know, I'm struggling. I curious about sobriety. I always try to point them in the right direction, get on the phone with them. But I'm never, I think it's just accepting that you're never going to be perfect, especially with something like sobriety, progress, you know, not perfection. And so accepting that, I think the perfection aspect bleeds into my, my own like personality stuff with like, if I don't like look the way that I want to look, I could get annoyed if I don't, you know, act the way that I want to act in a conversation with someone. Those are the things that I'll not have anxiety about, but like overthink. And also just wanting people to react the way that I want them to react versus like how they actually would react. I think I can get like controlling. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think like with like the type A personality, it's like we, because most of the time what we do is we try to stay so regimented and like stick to what we know and everything that when things feel out of our control, we do what we can to control the things that we can't control anyway, but we just continue to, to fight for like figuring out how we can do that. As far as like recovery goes, let's just say somebody's listening to this and they're newly sober and they're maybe they're entering into a 12-step program, maybe they're entering in just some sort of alternative form of recovery would have been like some of the three to five things other than, you know, the community aspect of it that have been like incredibly like pivotal for you as far as like, you know, staying sober. For me, having everyone close to me understand exactly why I'm sober is pivotal. Because if somebody doesn't understand it and they don't think that you take it seriously, they will be like, just have a drink. Come on. What's the big deal? You know, they will sway you in a direction. But if you have good friends and family who understand it, they will be like, none for you. Don't be silly. You know, and that's actually helpful. I think, you know, having a partner who doesn't need weed, alcohol, any of it in the house is so 
crucial. And I have so much respect for people who have, you know, we still have, we have wine in the house, but like, we don't, I don't care about wine. I never did. Like if we had like 1942 and like rolled joints in the house, like that would be so hard for me. And so mad respect to people who do with a partner, but that it's pivotal for me not to have those things. I think also just, you know, being able to see like the amazing things and remind myself daily of all the great things that have happened as a result of my sobriety is great. Like I have one of those apps that are like, that's like you saved over blah, blah, blah dollars from being sober. And I'm like, I check that and I'm like, wow, that's pretty epic. And so just like those little reminders. That's amazing. I think it's really special that you've like just naturally found somebody that you know, supports you unconditionally with your journey and doesn't make it difficult because that's part of the battle for a lot of people is they have some of the people that are closest to them that are like maybe unintentionally bad influences on them in some way. And they don't understand addiction. They don't support them authentically. So I think it's really cool that, that you have that as far as like, you know, you touched on something I think people struggle with and that when they stop drinking and they stop doing something, they're out and they're out with a group of friends and their friends like, come on, just have a drink, just have a drink. What were some of the things that you found useful to say when, when you felt pressured to do something you didn't want to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm lucky in that, like, I haven't really been in that situation often, but if it did happen, I would just be like, no, like I'm, I'm having way more fun not having a drink. Yeah. Because it sounds like when you say it like that, it sounds super confident. You're not like questioning yourself. You're just super direct, confident. And then like if people, like you have to understand, I think I've heard you talk about this, that if people are pressuring you, it's almost like they're projecting, like they know they need to stop drinking or they have an unhealthy relationship with whatever it is. And they're just trying to get you to do something to make them feel better. Exactly. The last thing I want to talk to you about is like dating. You know, I'm personally single. I know like some of my audience is single. So like I think people are often intrigued to hear different thoughts on dating. Let's just say that somebody ran into you at a coffee shop in New York City and they had like two or three minutes with you. And, you know, there's two to three minutes. You could just share everything you know about dating. Like, what do you think would be most useful for them? I would say that they should follow We Met at Acme's dating rules. I would say that, you know, dating is unfortunately a numbers game. You want to meet as many people as possible. I would say that it's very important to not put all your cards on the table in the beginning and like trauma dump, especially as a sober person. And like confidence is a huge part of it. And you should have like have someone earn your openness with them. You know, you don't need to, I'm not saying to go in like so stiff, but like, like the best relationships are like onions where it's like you get layer by layer as opposed to like all at once. And I think there are certain things that you could do when you're dating that create like a false sense of closeness when in reality you should just be like enjoying. And I think when you go on your first dates, act like you're meeting a new friend, like low stakes. When you're making a dating profile, have fun with it, make it like a light breath of fresh air when someone's scrolling that they see your profile, not like some heavy, crazy stuff. And if you get rejected, like, again, it's redirection, you know, it's your protection, it's whatever it is, it's all part of it. So it's way better than to be than to have loved and lost or been rejected than to have not put yourself out there at all. 
So that's the only way that you can be happy is by continuing to put yourself out there and not be someone who triple, quadruple texts, but put yourself out there and there's someone out there looking for exactly what you have to offer. I love that. And I think that's a great place for us to start because everything kind of came full circle about putting yourself out there and just knowing that you're enough. And I think that's just so important, no matter what area of life you're trying to work work on and that you are enough, you got to put yourself out there, take a chance on yourself. And if something doesn't work out, it's taking you in, into a different direction. There's something else like better for you after that. So Lindsay, I wanted to thank you once again for coming on, being so vulnerable and, and sharing so authentically. If people want to connect with you, if they want to listen to the podcast, where's the best place to do that? Yeah. Thanks, Doug. Wherever they listen to podcasts, we met at Acme. We met at Acme on Instagram. My personal is Linz Metz, L-I-N-D-Z-M-E-T-Z. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure to link that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something Lindsay said about her story. Maybe it was something that she said about like, you know, why she started to use marijuana. Maybe it was something that she said about her journey of addiction. Maybe it was something that she said about getting into recovery or how she transformed her life after recovery or something we just talked about when it came to dating. Whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Lindsay and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.